is Stephanie Contrahera, licensed professional counselor, and I have with me today LP Palazzolo, and I'm going to have her introduce herself. She's a student at DU here in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Stephanie. Glad to be here. Um, like you said, I'm a student at the University of Denver. I'm studying counseling psychology um, and clinical mental health. Uh, so essentially, I'm a therapist in training. And um, my biggest interests are working with the LGBTQ plus population, as well as working with eating disorders and body image issues. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on today. And I'm interested in hearing your perspective on this topic. I know here on Millennium Mental Health, we've had a few episodes um, addressing eating disorders and body image. We have yet to address this specific topic within that like world of mental health and eating disorder issues. So I'm, I'm glad to add that as a part of the conversation here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to remember intersectionality when we're talking about eating disorders and body image. Um, there's just, there are so many factors at play, you know, everybody's experience of their body and eating is different. And um, I think a lot of folks get overlooked in not only conversations about eating disorders, but also in research um, and accessible care. You know, it's very much geared towards this image we have of white, straight, cisgender women, um, oftentimes rich as well, um, which is just not the reality of, you know, who gets affected by eating disorders and body image issues. Yeah, I like to kind of dive more into the populations that you feel probably get most overlooked. Um, I oftentimes find, at least in my experience, people who identify as transgender or non-binary or, um, yeah, I would say even those two experience eating disorders a little bit differently than even like people that I've uh, given therapy to who might identify um, as lesbian or, or gay or uh, bisexual. It's like a very different experience with their, their body and body dysphoria and um, eating disorders. So I was hoping you could maybe speak a little bit to that difference. If Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, it's such a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. I think something really interesting to note, um, there was actually a study, and I believe it was 2015, that showed that trans folks are actually about four and a half times more likely to have an eating disorder diagnosis than cis women. Um, so it's definitely a, a huge issue within the community. And um, I think like you're saying, when you have issues with body image due to diet culture and weight stigma and all the sort of influences that we as United States Americans are privy to, um, that's one thing. But then when you bring in the trans community and the non-binary community, you know, there's a lot of body image issues that stem from maybe not passing in the way they want to or trying to fit into an altogether different idealized body than the one that they were inhabiting for years. Um, so it can definitely, it's, it's all sort of mixed around and it's, it's definitely requires a little bit more nuance than just, you know, oh, I just want to be skinnier, which of course most eating disorders are more nuanced than that, but an extra layer. Yeah, I definitely would think so. I, I feel like I went to this training like a few years ago, probably before the pandemic, because it was in person. Um, and they were talking a lot about in the specific training, how sometimes an eating disorder 
in a trans person is developed out of a desire to change their body to look like the their desired um, gender. Mm-hmm. Is that still what's thought to be like commonplace information or is that maybe outdated at this point? I mean, I think painting with a broad brush would be outdated, but I think a lot of times that can be really true. I mean, if you think about like what makes, you know, a body that was assigned male at birth appear more feminine, slimmer, smaller. Um, What makes a body that was assigned female at birth appear more masculine, like smaller chest, smaller hips. Um, And a lot of that can definitely lead to disordered eating or, um, you know, orthorexia, like um, excessive movement and exercise to try and change the way their bodies look which is not necessarily, I mean, it doesn't always have to be disordered, but I think it's it's easy to slip into that field when there's already so much weight and emotion around how you perceive your own body. Yeah, I, I think, to, at least again, in my experience as a therapist, people feel more comfortable coming into me, at least talking about eating disorders, since that's what I specialize. And then later, it kind of comes out that maybe they're also dealing with um, wanting to transition or um, identifying as non-binary. And it would, I think it would be really great for the field of mental health at a bare minimum um, for people to kind of feel comfortable coming in and saying that both are things that they're wanting to to work on rather than kind of like keeping that in the, the their back pocket until they've like tested me out to see if I'm like a comfortable person to, yeah. to talk with it, talk about that with. But I, I get it. It makes total sense to me based on the world that we live in. But I think it would be really nice one day where that's just kind of like presenting up front rather than I have to keep this to myself. And I feel more comfortable saying I have an eating disorder than identifying as transgender or non-binary. Yeah, definitely. And I think so much of that, too, is about the like control aspect of so many eating disorders. You know, this is something that I can control and this is something about my body that I can control or a way that I can take control of my body. Um, And I also think, you know, there's that piece of lack of affirming care. I think a lot of people are afraid to mention that, that other, you know, gender piece of things, because, you know, they don't know if the therapist is going to be affirming and is going to be able to provide competent care for them um, and take both of these very nuanced experiences of having an eating disorder and, you know, having, working through gender identity, um, and be able to sort of work with them both in a way that feels affirming. Yeah. So those that are working on like their gender identity, what would you say is helpful trying to work on both of them like simultaneously, or do you feel like they really need to be worked on separately? I know it's common practice to believe that eating disorders need to be worked on like in conjunction with whatever other mental health issue that they're experiencing, would you agree that it's the same for gender uh, dysphoria and gender exploration as well? Yeah. So I think there are definitely aspects that can be worked on separately, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think they're so tied up because at the, you know, when you get down to it, both of them, both gender dysphoria, that's still what they're going through and eating disorders are so tied up in body and, um, I think there's also just recognizing that there is a logistical aspect for a lot of trans folks. This might not apply to all trans folks. Not everyone wants to change their physical attributes. Um, But for those who do, there is the logistic component of, yeah, some things are going to have to change for me to feel comfortable in my body. So how do you balance that with, you know, making sure that they are not falling into disordered eating? Um, 
it can be, I think, quite tricky. And I think one of the big questions that can be really helpful to ask is like, what do you think will happen if you, you know, lose the weight? Like, how do you, how do you see this playing out? Are there alternative avenues you can go down? Um, and just trying to make sure that you've really explored that to the fullest and you're really hearing their experience of it. Yeah. I'd imagine the message of like body acceptance needs to be like tailored in, th- in this um, situation. I remember in the very beginning of treating a, a client, I was really kind of pushing this like body acceptance, body tolerance sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then later, you know, they disclosed that like that message was like getting in their head mm-hmm. and like kind of messing with their, their gender identity at the time. I didn't know that they were experiencing gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. but it's interesting how that kind of like body acceptance almost like ran up against um, their, this, you know, co co occurring experience that they were having. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really like that verbiage coexisting or, Oh man, I just forgot a coexisting experience. Is that what you said? Oh man. I was like, I love that. Co-occurring experience. Co-occurring experience. <laughs> love that. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I think the body acceptance thing too, it can be really helpful for some folks, but I'm also thinking of like folks with, you know, maybe physical disabilities that feel like, well, I don't accept my body. Like I just, I'm not going to like it. Um, and I think there's something to be said with, okay, it's fine not to like your body, but can we respect your body and respect your mental health and do things that feel like they are treating you with your yourself and your body with respect? Um, Cause yeah, I think the, the body acceptance movement and like body positivity has definitely taken over the mic in a lot of ways. And I think it's just like, it's really not there for everyone. It's not going to work out for some folks. Yeah. That kind of, you mentioned uh, people that experience or unfortunately are physically disabled. Um, they experience body acceptance, I'm assuming, in a very different way. Um, I have some clients that have experienced um, like chronic pain or like a physical disability that also have issues with like their body image and almost being angry at their body for not working the way that they want it to. Mm-hmm. So that message really, I think, goes against like what they're willing to, to feel about their body. Cause I, I get it. Like I would be mad at my body if it stopped doing what I mm-hmm. quote unquote wanted it to do, or it never did what I wanted it to do. And mm-hmm. trying to have this message of body acceptance, like shoved down my throat, I would definitely feel like I would want to reject that. Yeah. Well, and so much of it is like, Oh, thank your body. It walked you here today. And it's like, well, not everybody's body did walk them somewhere today. And um, it's just very much, it's a, a lovely sentiment, like, oh, just love your body and all it can do. But I think for some people, that relationship is just way too complex to have a sweeping statement like that. Um, I'm a big advocate of body neutrality um, in, you know, just trying to not constantly be aware of your body and not be judging it as much. I think that can be really helpful. Um, but again, so tricky for, for the trans community if they are choosing to physically transition because there's a certain logistical amount that you just have to think about your body and have to focus on it. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, do you feel like those that, um, what, I mean, what is different about the population that identifies as like lesbian or or gay as far as eating disorders uh, Mm -hmm. go and what's important do you think for therapists and maybe even the community outside of that to, to know about that specific like population? 
So um, again, pulling from that article that I mentioned earlier from 2015, um, gay cis men are about one and a half times more likely to be to have an eating disorder diagnosis than cis straight women. Um, there's not like a huge statistical difference between um, lesbian or questioning cis women and straight cis women, but um, I think it's also important to understand a lot of cultural components. Um, like, so trying not to paint too broad a brush of everyone in the cis man community, cis gay man community. Um, but there is a lot of focus on appearance for a lot of folks. You know, there's sort of like the twink and bear culture. Um, you know, these are like identities within the community that also are very heavily influenced by how your body looks. And um, that can be, I think, can definitely be a contributor. There's just one more sort of cultural messaging, like cultural messaging coming from one more place that is affecting their their experience. So I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah, it's definitely way more complicated than I'm assuming the people who originally were doing research on eating disorders ever like imagined, unfortunately, because they're their view of eating disorders has been for decades, this, like you said, white female individual, those are the people that suffer from eating disorders. Never mind, like anyone that even looks anything different than that or identifies anything different than that. Yeah. And I mean, even for cis men, um, you know, there's not a ton of like residential eating disorder care that actually caters to cis men. A lot of eating disorder places don't have um, like housing for cis men um, I, or trans folks for that matter. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's a huge barrier to care. And there's also, you know, sort of how people who might be um, diagnosing or medical doctors, um, they might be sort of listening to the symptoms from cis men and hearing them differently. So, you know oh, I exercise for four hours. Like, oh, good for you. Like you're, you know, so masculine or you work on your body. Like they just don't think of it in the same way. Whereas if you heard a cis woman say exercise for four hours, you're probably picturing like a treadmill, you know, whereas if you think of a cis man, it's like, oh, he must be really into weights. Um, and I think the flags just aren't there the same way. Um, so that's kind of like an external factor that makes treatment a little bit different um, or non-existent for a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the population of like wrestlers or even like football players, or there's a big focus on like manipulating um, a person's body in order to perform a sport, right. Or in order to compete in some sort of um, athletic competition. And that oftentimes can be prized rather than seen as a red flag. Oh yeah, definitely. And prized and also just normal, like, you know, that's, that's just what you do as you're, as an athlete. And, um, I mean, I'm just thinking about all the people I knew in high school who were on wrestling and who were like, Oh, I can't eat anything other than vegetables for the next three days. And I mean, high school, your brain is still developing, like how harmful and to get into those habits so young just seems wildly irresponsible for all the, the coaches and sorry to anybody involved in wrestling, but, uh, <laughs> changes might need to be made. Yeah, I definitely think the the culture around certain um, sports and certain places definitely needs to be educated um, more on the messaging that they're sending out to impressionable people um, in order to have a more healthy environment. Because I think wrestling could easily be like a 
healthy sport if it, you know, all of these cultural norms maybe shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's still like insidious, you know, there's, you know, there's so many like little comments that people say to like, especially to young folks, like, I'm just thinking about like, a, you know, cheerleader. Um, I did cheer in high school. And at one point, a coach said like, Oh, if you lost a couple pounds, you could jump higher. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess that's maybe true. But why would you say that to a young, you know, a young kid who's just already like the height of body insecurity? Um, and, you know, you're not even talking about, oh, if you practice, if you drilled your jumps five times, you probably jump higher. You know, there's no need to bring the weight into it. So that culture is definitely, I think weight is seen generally as an issue that can be solved. And it's like the first line of defense. Like, that makes sense. Yes. I I definitely find myself feeling like doctors and teachers and coaches and sometimes parents like send these messages around body weight and food that is just very narrow and not necessarily considering like how can this really be perceived by whoever's hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. So even like just talking about themselves being on a diet, I think can influence another person to think, well, they don't like their body and they're on a diet. I should be on a diet too. Yeah. Well, and it's so ingrained in our culture, right? Like, yeah. You're supposed to like feel shame if you take another donut at the, you know, office party or whatever. Um, It's like these, all these unwritten rules. Um, It's just so interesting. It's actually making me think of this quote that I saw from a trans woman who essentially said like one of the biggest connections I had to my, to my gender, to womanhood was dieting because that's like, you can bond over dieting. You can bond over hating your body. That's like just a built-in something that we all experience, which is, I mean, how sad is that? Yeah. This is like a, maybe not a unique experience at all, but I remember one time I was at the dentist and I was like overhearing this conversation that this patient and a uh, hygienist were having. And they were talking about um, like a weight loss program. And I'm like, out of all of the topics that you could possibly talk about with your hygienist that you see once every six months, like they're choosing to talk about like what diet they're on and how mm-hmm. to lose the most weight, like the quickest. And I'm like, this is kind of sad that unfortunately even casual conversation has become about weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, something that I've become a lot more aware of in the past few years and I've tried to sort of nip it in the bud. And um, it can get so awkward when you're like, even something as simple as saying like, oh, I don't talk about my body like that. Like people will be shocked. They will be offended. They get defensive. Um, it's it's a hard thing to break out of. And it's so easy to just join in, right? Like It's like, so easy to just be like, Oh yeah, me too. That's a little harder to break out. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to talk about also like access to care. You kind of already alluded to that um, there with the not really having a lot of like residential treatment for uh, trans or um, cis men. I'm curious, like, what do you think? Well, one could talk about that further and two, like, yeah, how can the community do different or change this? Because I definitely think access to care needs to be something that we're all thinking about when it comes to treatment for 
clients, whether they're an eating disorder client or not? Yeah. So I definitely think one of the big things with access to care is education of the mental health professional community. Um, I think this sort of focus on like, you know, cis men versus cis women and then trans folks, like where do we put the trans folks, especially in like residential care, this sort of like hyper focus on that takes away from the real issue, which is that these people need care. Um, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world if they have to bunk with somebody who doesn't have the same set of genitalia that they do. Um, and it's also inherently a little bit just, you know, heteronormative. Like, are you really afraid that if you pop two people with, you know, opposing genitals together there, what are they going to do? You know, it's just very sort of short-sighted and these people need care. So I think a lot of education around like kind of, why do we think that? Why do we think that we need to have so much focus on that piece? Um, I think that's really important. And then the other big piece with accessibility is, um, well, there's a couple bigger pieces, I guess. Um, I mean, money, (laughs) eating disorder care is notoriously extremely expensive. Um, which is, you know, a huge issue because as we discussed, there are plenty of folks who don't have access to means who are suffering. Um, and then I guess the last bit is there is like a racial and cultural divide. Um, you know, a lot of folks of color are much less likely to seek care. Um, a lot of it is because of cultural norms. Um, and a lot of it is just sort of what we were talking about with cis men earlier. Um, people don't consider their symptoms the same way often because, you know, given that a lot of our research and a lot of the narrative of eating disorders focuses on cis white women, you know, people aren't as ready to see those, those same symptoms and flag the same things in people of color. Um, so I guess more education is, you know, and imploring people to investigate, you know, interrogate their own biases and, um, you know, consider what they immediately think of and, how can you, how can I become a little bit more open and willing to see these, these symptoms for what they are in other folks? Yes, I think that. And also I just want to be clear too, like eating disorders isn't necessarily look the same way in every single person. So it's really about exploring like the person's relationship, like with food and the person's relationship, like with their body. So like it might be normal quote unquote in the culture for you know, someone to eat salads every day, or it might be normal in the culture for them to eat like, I don't know, bagels every day or fried chicken every day and eat lots of it and, or eat none of it at all. And like all of these rules that people have and cultural norms, I think those need to be like explored individually, like per person, not just like, oh, well, you know, they're a white female that lives in New York City. Of course, they eat salads every day. That's like completely normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't eat anything else besides salads. Like that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, there's this like man that only drinks like protein shakes every single day. That's also like pretty normal. It's like, well, let's really like dive into exploring what these norms really are and how they're mm-hmm. impacting this person's mental health. Right. Well, and I think also we have such like a, you know, as United States Americans, we have such a Eurocentric view of like what constitutes like healthy eating. Um, and I actually follow someone on Instagram. I think her handle is just the Latina nutritionist. Um, but she's a dietitian and she, her whole platform is like, you know, rice isn't like bad inherently. Bread isn't bad inherently. Like you can still eat your cultural foods and get the nutrition you need. Um, you know, cause there is like a lot of pushback. A lot of what we see as healthy is very Eurocentric and 
Um, so there's even the other side of the coin, like what we see as healthy and unhealthy other cultures have a completely different view. And I think it's important to take that into account as well. Bring that curiosity and openness. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot to pay attention to. And again, like trying not to make like broad statements about what any like one specific quote unquote group of people mm-hmm. <laughs> are supposed to be doing or yeah. like are supposed to look like or whatever. Yeah. Well, I just want to like wrap things up then uh, for today. I think we had a pretty good conversation. And if anyone wants to reach out and has questions either for myself or LP on this topic or wants further resources, feel free to reach out to either of us. Um, you can reach us on our website, wellmindedcounseling.com, or just reach out to their main email, admin at wellmindedcounseling.com. We'd be happy to answer any questions you have about this topic or anything related to this. Um, so thank you so much, LP, for being on today. And I hope that everyone feels like they can walk away with some more knowledge um, about this specific topic. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks for having me.